excited to be here, happy to be here. And, uh, you know, I uh, read a, a devotion um, a little while back in, in Our Daily Bread. You know, get that one. But uh, it relayed this story. Stephen uh, was an up-and-coming comedian and, and a prodigal. He uh, was raised in a Christian family. He struggled with doubt after his dad and his two brothers died in a plane crash. Um, but by his early 20s, he, he really lost his faith. He found it one night, though, on the frigid streets of Chicago. A stranger uh, gave him a pocket New Testament, and then Stephen cracked open the pages. Um, an index said those who were struggling with anxiety should read Matthew 6, 27 and, uh, through 34, which was uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Stephen turned there, and the words, they kindled a fire in his heart. He recalled... You know, I was absolutely immediately lightened, and I stood on the street corner in the cold and read this sermon, and my life has never been the same. Um, such is the power of Scripture. The, the Bible is unlike any other book because it's alive. You know, we don't just read the Bible. The Bible reads us. Hebrews 4.12 tells us the Bible is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, the Bible presents the most powerful force on the planet, a force that transforms and leads us towards spiritual maturity. God promises in Isaiah that the words he's spoken shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Um, when you don't don't hear too often in you know quoted from the pulpit, but Mahatma Gandhi, he was speaking to a, a group of Christians, and he said, "You Christians have in your keeping a document with enough dynamite to blow the whole civilization to bits, to turn society upside down, to bring peace to this war-torn world." But you read it as if it were just good literature and nothing else. But I want to ask tonight, how much do we actually know about this book we hold in our hands? How much do we know where it came from, who wrote it, why it's the most reliable, most powerful book in history? So tonight I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some information. Some of this, the teen boys and Megan, well, she's not in here, but Megan would, would have heard some of it. So... Um, but I'm going to challenge you about this powerful book that you hold in your hands. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, and I have some outlines. I did outlines. Thank you, gentlemen. All right, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. We'll use this as a jumping off point. Um, we'll jump around, then we'll come back. So let's pray. Grace, Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your... This book, Lord, the power that is in this book. Uh, Lord, just uh, give me the right words to say. Help me say what I say, ought say, not not say what I ought not, Lord. And just uh, hide me behind your cross tonight. In your name, amen. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. In righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Um, you know, so so I, I kind of couple things about about the Bible. First thing I want I want us to realize and understand about the Bible is its its uniqueness. The Bible's un, its uniqueness. First, 
look at what this verse says. It's God's words. Look back at verse 16. Verse 16 tells us that all scripture, all scripture, the entire Bible is given by inspiration of God. The word inspiration here is the Greek word. It's used one time in the New Testament. Who remembers what it is? Theonoustos, if you were curious. Theonoustos. It's a compound word in the Greek. Two words making up one thought. The first word, theo, means God. The second word, noustos, means breath. The word literally means God's breath. God didn't just inspire the Bible, like something, you know, inspires you to play a good football game or to write a song or a poem or something like that. The, the, this book was literally breathed into by the creator of the universe. And that's one of the most important things to remember when discussing the Bible. These aren't the words or thoughts of some, some guy, some man who sat under a blanket, got all sweaty and wrote. These are the literal words of God. You know, think about the men that were, wrote the Gospels. Matthew didn't just write an account on the life and teachings of Jesus on his own. God, through the Holy Spirit, guided that process. You know, uh, in doing this research, um, you read the accounts of Matthew and Luke. They're strikingly similar. According to Jewish history, they were written about the same time. They didn't know each other. That can only be explained by divine inspiration, right? So next, see man's influence. And that's one of my favorite things. Just because God, God breathed these words into men to write, he didn't like place them in a trance and say, write these words, right? One of the most unique things about the Bible is that Regular people authored it. Over 40 regular people authored it. God used these men, their personalities, their positions, their past, you know, the things these men learned, their experiences they had. God used all of that in writing this book we hold in our hands. He used Paul's past as a Pharisee, his love of sport, his wit and manner of speech. You know, he's used Luke's training as a doctor, a researcher. He used David's experience as a shepherd boy, a musician, and then a king. He used Nehemiah and his experience as a cupbearer to, to a pagan king. You know, God used men, but he used every part of that man. You know, over 40 men were used to pen this book. Every walk of life, kings, military leaders, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, tax collectors, poets, musicians, statesmen, scholars, shepherds. And that's what makes it relatable, right? But the most amazing thing about this book is there's one consistent theme. It was written by 40 men over a period of 1,500 years. It was written on three different continents in three different languages, different places on that continent, the wilderness, a dungeon, a palace, prison, traveling on exile in an island. It was written in times of war and sacrifice, times of peace and prosperity, heights of joy depths of despair, times of certainty and times of doubt. Um, the literary styles in the Bible include poetry, historical narrative, song, romance, personal correspondences, memoirs, satire, biography, law, prophecy, parable, allegory. It addresses hundreds of controversial subjects, but all with an amazing degree of harmony. In spite of all of that stuff, there's one theme, one theme one single unfolding story throughout scripture, God's redemption of his greatest creation. This unifying thread woven throughout these pages 
is salvation from sin and condemnation to a life of complete transformation and unending bliss in the presence of the one merciful, holy God. Among all the people, this Bible's full of people described in this book, but there's one leading character, the one true living God made known through his son, Jesus Christ. Consider the Old Testament, the law, the first five books provide the foundation for Christ. The historical books, how many are there? Twelve. <clears throat> Show the preparation for Christ. The, po uh, the, the poetical books aspire to Christ. And the prophecies display an expectation of Christ. And then look at the New Testament. The Gospels record the manifestation of Christ. Acts relates the spread of Christ. The epistles give the interpretation of Christ. And in Revelation, we find the consummation of Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, the beginning to the end, the Bible is Christocentric. Think of it this way. and See if you can help me. The Old Testament does what? Points to Christ. The New Testament does what? points back at Christ. You know, I read an account of the consistency of the Bible. <clears throat> In days gone by, you know, like the 80s, uh, men would go door to door selling things. One thing that was popular was a group or a collection of Western right, uh, classics. Um, there's 400, over 450 works by 100 authors, and it spanned a period about 25 centuries. Authors like Homer, Plato, Aristotle, Dante, Calvin, Hobbes, not the comic strip, Shakespeare, Tolstoy, just to name a few. But while each of these authors, they would be the Western tradition of ideas, there, there was an incredible display of diversity with views just on about a, every view on every subject, right? Sometimes they'd agree, but most of the time they didn't. So this salesman would come in, he'd spread out this giant chart, and he'd try to sell you on what you did it. And one of the attempted sales, though, the salesman was challenged to take 10 authors from the series, all from the same walk of life, same generation, same continent, same mood, same language, addressing the same subject. Salesman was then asked, well, would the authors agree? And he goes, no, they would, it would still be just a conglomeration of works. That in itself displays the utter uniqueness of this book. It was penned by over 40 men, different walks of life different generations, different continents, different locales within those continents, three different languages, but the entire book is one central theme. The writers addressed extremely controversial subjects, marriage, divorce, homosexuality, obedience to authority, character development, parenting, all with an amazing degree of harmony. So that's the uniqueness of the Bible. Next, I want you to see the reliability of the Bible, the Bible and its reliability. Turn with me to Psalm 119. We're going to read the whole thing um, and stop at one verse in 160. No, we'll read 160. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Thy word is true from the beginning. The Bible Bible is completely true. It's 100% true. It's not just a bunch of stories put together. It's actual accounts of real people and real places and real things that really happened for real. But here's the million-dollar question. Does it matter? Does it matter if the Bible is true? Let's answer that by turning to 1 Corinthians. 
First Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15:12 says, "Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then our then is our preaching in vain, or is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, And we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up. If so be that that the dead not rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. And ye are yet in your sins. Then Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. In this life only we have hope in Christ. We are of all men, most miserable. You know, put simply this, if the Bible isn't true, if the Bible isn't completely 100% true, our faith is in vain. What we do here in this room tonight is in vain. What we do in our life is in vain. And we have no hope. But here's the good news. The Bible's true. All of the Bible is true. From God creating the world in six literal days, as described in Genesis, to the sun standing still in the sky in Joshua, to the rise of Israel under under the rule of Saul and David and Solomon, to the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, to the rise again, only to fall to the Romans, to the angels announcing the birth of a king, to the sky turning dark in the middle of the day when that king was crucified, to the world being turned upside down by some converted Jews, the Bible is true. You know, do you have to trust that by faith that every word is true? Partially. But there's enough evidence to prove the truth of Scripture. Not every word, but there's enough evidence. So first, I want you to see the evidence, the evidence of truth in the Bible in fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Anyone ever play with a magic eight ball? Shake that thing and tells you, not not today or whatever. You know, it can't tell your future any more than a frog can fly. Frogs fly in my kid's church, but that's another story. Um, Biblical prophecy is quite different, though. There's numerous prophecies recorded in the Old Testament. Hundreds of years, they were written before they came true in the New Testament or later. Unlike a magic eight ball, they'll tell, they won't tell you in vague generalities. They're specific. In teen class, we talked about some uh, around Christmas, uh, quite a few you know, involving uh, the coming of the Messiah. Um, I'll, 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 I'll roll some off. Jesus, born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, fulfilled in Luke 2. Four through seven, Jesus condemned with criminals. Isaiah fifty three twelve, Luke twenty three, thirty two and thirty three. Jesus hands and feet pierced. Uh, this one was actually written before crucifixion was invented. Psalm twenty two uh, sixteen, John nineteen eighteen. Jesus buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah fifty three nine, Luke twenty three fifty through fifty three. You know these are specific to Jesus. Did you know there's over sixty? prophecies about his birth, his life, his death, every single one of them was fulfilled. In fact, Isaiah 53 alone predicts 15 different things about the Messiah, all that came true. 
But there's other prophecies in the Bible. And they're proved by non-biblical evidence. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, all predict the destruction of Jerusalem. In AD 70, this happened and was recorded in secular writings by Roman Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. Jeremiah predicted the reinstatement of Israel as a nation in Jeremiah 31. You know, this was actually thought to be a failed prophecy until May 14, 1948, when the provisional government of Israel proclaimed a new state of Israel. On that same date, the United States, in the person of President Truman, recognized the provisional Jewish government as the de facto authority of the Jewish state after nearly 2,000 years of non-existence. Truth of the matter is, there's hundreds of prophecies about Jesus, countries, kings, and world events in the Bible. Not one has been proven false. But there isn't just support in fulfilled prophecy. There's also support for truth of truth in the Bible in archaeology, the field of archaeological support. So here's the thing about archaeological support, right? If the Bible says a place like Jericho existed and archaeology verifies it, it doesn't Bible. It can't prove spiritual truth. Archaeological truth can't, or support can't prove spiritual truth. But archaeology has never proven the Bible false. There are some things it hasn't yet supported, but it's never been proven false by archaeology. Here's some evidence that's been proven by archaeology. Pretty amazing to me, actually. Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, he's been proven accurate by archaeology in regards to 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands, 95 different references, all supported by archaeology. John, who wrote John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation, mentions in, the, in his gospel um, that near the pool of Bethesda, there were five porches. For years, it was believed that, that he was wrong. Until 40 feet underground, five porches were found. Over 25,000 sites show connection with the Old Testament have loca been located in lands in the Bible. You know, as far as textual evidence, a portion of the Gospel John of John was found written on ancient papyrus dated to just after 100 AD. So we have fulfilled prophecies. We have a field of archaeological uh, evidence. Joel, I think this is your favorite part. Floods of historical evidence. You know, no matter what you think of history, whether you love it, like young Mr. Slusser here, or whether you hate it, there are some facts that are indisputable. Take the Vietnam War. Some of this room fought during it. Others were alive to witness the horrific effects. Some weren't even born yet, but there's no disputing it happened. Whether the proof is by eyewitness account or video or written evidence, you can't dispute that it happened. Something would need to be recorded by video or writing, and then verified by multiple people to the accuracy of what happened. We certainly have that with things such as Vietnam War, Civil War, French Revolution, right? The same is true when it comes to the Bible. There's a lot of historical evidence. Not only do we have a lot of evidence, it comes from different sources. So, you know, I'm not going to go into to details, but a piece of writing's passed down. It's called a, a manuscript evidence, right? We've all heard of Aristotle. He was a philosopher. He lived around, uh, wrote around 300 BC. We have copies of things he wrote. Guess how many? Five. One we may not have heard of is Tacitus. He was a Greek historian. He wrote about the same time as the Bible. We actually have a lot of things from him. Guess how many? 20. The Bible? 
We have over 24,000 manuscript evidence of the New Testament alone. That's not counting what we have of the Old Testament. You know, nobody doubts Aristotle or Tactus wrote what they wrote, but people doubt the Bible. We have a thousand times more manuscript evidence. You know, one argument is that, well, historical, you know, it doesn't, doesn't, you're just, it's copies of copies, so it, you know, it loses some of its meaning. Um, yeah, okay. We'll pick on Aristotle again. He can't defend himself. He lived in 300 BC. The earliest copy we have of anything he wrote, 1100 AD, 1400 years after he, he wrote it. Tacitus is a thousand years. The Bible, of the 24,000 copies, 230 of them date before 600 AD, about 550 years. The copy of the Gospel of John dates to about 125, a mere 35 years after he lived. What all this means is this, right? It doesn't, doesn't prove spiritual truth. If the Bible can't be proven false by archaeological evidence, by historical evidence, by fulfilled prophecy, then it lends to the rest of Scripture being true and believable, right? We can't prove spiritual truth, but we can prove physical truth. And if physical truth hasn't been contradicted, then spiritual truth can't be. Because here's the thing. Truth and reliability matter, especially in regards to the Bible. If the Bible wasn't true, we're all wasting our time. And as Paul put it, we're all men most miserable. So we saw the uniqueness. We saw the reliability. Let's go back to 2 Timothy 3, look at a couple things as we close <clears throat> that we can apply to our lives about this great book and why it's important that we understand more about it and tap into the great power that's held inside. So there's nothing more powerful than the Word of God. It has the answer to every question. It contains the power to meet every need in your life. Proverbs 3.1 tells us, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. Verse 8 continues, It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. In essence, in essence, this Bible is the answer to every human need. But when you neglect God's word, that neglect will eventually affect every part of your life. It'll jeopardize your faith. It'll steal your joy. It'll create a rotten attitude that's contrary to scripture. So now I want you to see the Bible and its power. So first, Paul writes that the Bible is profitable for doctrine. The word profitable here is, is another Greek word, ophelimos, meaning advantageous or helpful. He connected profitable to the word doctrine. Doctrine means learning or teaching. This word doctrine is used 21 times in the New Testament, most in reference to the thing we affirm and believe to be true. Doctrine is foundation for what we believe. It impacts what we think. It affects our worldview. It determines what we believe is right and wrong. It guides us in our life. It determines our convictions, our standards, and it affects our actions and activities in life. We are a product of our doctrine. So what Paul is saying this, the Bible is advantageous to everything we think, everything we say, everything we do. It's our guidebook through life. David writes in the Psalms, thy word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. God's word's a candle that can give us light in every dark place, but it's also light that shines upon all of our works and all of our ways. You know, we can't see unless God's word lights our way. It's not only a book to study, but it's a practical guide for our daily walk with God. The Bible illuminates our path that brings us closer to God. Next, Paul writes that the word of God produces reproof in our lives. 
Reproof is simply this, conviction. The same word in the Greek is translated evidence. So God's word shines in our lives. When it does, it's glorious and brilliant light. Um, is so strong that it exposes every dark area that remains in our soul and our minds. And as the light of his word shines in our darkness and works in our heart and mind, we're convicted by the Holy Spirit. We can't remain in that darkness. You know, we ought to be changed as our minds are renewed to think correctly. Paul continues, brings correction. You know, I think reproof, correction, same thing. Correction is very different. It's another compound word. Epi, which means whenever, wherever, at any moment, at any time. And anorthu, which means to make straight. So reproof means to convict. It's going to show you what's wrong. Correction means to make straight at any time. So think of, this, think of, it, of it this way. A person is reproved. They make this decision that my life is wrong. I'm going to start building my life on the word of God. And, and, and uh, you know, he allows this light to shine into the deepest parts and expose those dark areas. The word will then release the power necess- required for that necessary change. God's word will lift that person up, like we read earlier, even as we knock down flat, flat on his back in life, and he'll set him back on his feet again. Paul concludes verse 16, saying the scripture is given for instruction and in righteousness, meaning basically this. When God's word is taken into our hearts and applied to our lives, it fully equips us to successfully live by a higher standard that leads to upright, godly living. This book is how God speaks to us. This book is how we get direction. This book is how we know God more. This book is our manual for life. Every answer for every problem, every encouragement for the things that bring you down, every reproach for the sin that we humans get so entangled in is in this book. You know, the more we know of this book, the more we know of our Savior. The more we know of our Savior, the more we love our Savior. The more we love our Savior, the more we desire to do things in service to our Savior. The more we serve our Savior, the more we want to know our Savior thus starting the cycle over again, creating this deeper love for Jesus Christ. And it all starts with the words he breathed in this book. Let's pray. Grace, Heavenly Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for the Bible, Lord. Thank you that you inspired, literally breathed these words, Lord, and the power that's contained in these words, Lord. Just uh, help us to draw closer to you. Help us to find time in your word, to find you in your word, and, and to draw closer to you, Lord. Strengthen our lives, strengthen our walk with you. Give us a good night, safety as we travel home. In your name, amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.